Listeners should be aware, there may be spoilers. His people did not call him General or King. They called him Kukul Khan, the Feather Serpent God. Killing him will risk eternal war. He's coming for the surface world. Welcome to Editors on Editing, the podcast in collaboration with American Cinema Editors and Pro Video Coalition. I'm Glenn Garland, and I'm joined by Michael P. Shaver and Kelly Dixon. Michael has edited such outstanding films as Fruitville Station, Creed, Black Panther, A Quiet Place 2, and Blacklight, while Kelly has edited such excellent projects as Shameless, Breaking Bad, The Walking Dead, Better Call Saul, the Goldfinch, The Falcon and the Winter Soldier, and Obi-Wan Kenobi, for which he received multiple Eddie and Primetime Emmy Award nominations, winning the latter ones. Now they have collaborated, along with Jennifer Lame, to craft the emotional spectacle, Black Panther, Wakanda, Forever. So Michael Kelly, it's such a pleasure to have you here today. I love what you guys did with the editing on Black Panther, and I'm super excited to talk to you about it. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you for having us. Absolutely. Michael, you've worked with Ryan Coogler since his 2010 short Fig. How did that relationship begin? And tell me how that relationship has evolved over time. I'm from Rhode Island on the East Coast. I love it there, but it's not really a place where you make movies. And uh, so I Googled best film schools in the country and USC topped the list and I applied there. And somehow I got in and I was in a directing class and you know most student films and they're mostly about death or breakups and I just remember seeing what he was putting out and he was making some shorts about his life and his experiences and you'd be crying after watching a five-minute short with no dialogue and I'm not usually the person that does this and I've had to work on my networking skills since but I went up to him and I said look I'd love to work with you I can edit a little bit he got selected to direct a project which became fig and he actually asked me to help do a whole other job as a production designer. And I lied and said I knew what I was doing and I didn't, I (laughs) stayed up all night and panicked and figured it out. I helped shoot it, I helped light it, I helped, I was a gaffer, I got people lunch. And I think he realized that I was willing to do what it took to help his vision, whatever that was asked. I think showing him that work ethic and that will to make his vision come to life, he decided that I'd be a fit for Fig. And then from there, you know, Ryan's the kind of guy who once he finds someone that he likes to work with and he trusts them, he will fight. And he will turn money down and he will push and fight for that person. That's fantastic. He believed in me at times when I didn't even believe in myself. Because if you look at it from a macro view, I had only done shorts up to about 20 minutes. I had no business or experience cutting features, but he convinced the people in charge. And that's when I started Fruitvale and was my own assistant editor and figured out how to link two computers that weren't on the same network. And slept in a closet in East Oakland. And I think each step along the way, it's been Ryan fighting for his team and us doing whatever it takes to achieve that. That's awesome. Has the relationship evolved in different ways over the last 12 years? It has. We still pull up YouTube videos about filmmaking and editing and David Lean transitions. And you know, As an editor, you got to crawl inside that director's head and figure out what movie they're going to make. That's one of the most important things I've learned throughout the years is there's my version of the story, but then there's the movie the director wants to make. And on Fruitvale Station, we weren't on the same page at times with Michael's performance, for example, or Octavia's performance. 
And we took the time and we sat there and we watched every single take and we talked about every single take. Okay, what do you feel on this? What feels real to you here? What is the subtext on this shot? And really putting in that time and working together and trying things and failing really built that trust. And every director is like this in a way where if you have an idea as an editor, first you've got to prove it to them. But I would pitch an idea, and if he said no, then I would just let it go. But if it came back and it kept eating away at me and my gut, then I would do it on the side and make it the best it could be. And then, you know, we'd go from there. And I think on his side, he learned a little bit of, and he already did this, but really letting the heads of the departments have a certain level of ownership and storytelling. For us, the post-process works out the best when it's an organic process. And if something pops into our heads, like we try it. Before, when we used to be afraid of trying ideas, now our motto is, hey, if something scares us, let's go for it. And just the fact that Fruitvale is very different than Creed, than Black Panther, in terms of his process and how he's needed in every different facet with all the departments and all the crew. And I think him knowing that myself and whatever co-editor at the time we're working with, we have his back. He can throw whatever pitches he wants and we're the catcher that's going to stop it before it goes wild. And so he's totally comfortable with having whoever is assembling something do their own story because we know it's going to get work done and it's going to go through his filter as the director. We've really embraced and kind of spread that out throughout our team. And even to our assistants, I always tell my assistants, hey, if you have an idea for something and you want to cut a scene, go for it. And you'll find some gems. And we've done that throughout the years. And there, there are some cuts in the movies that we've all done that have been done by our assistants. Almost letting go of the intention which is one of the hardest things for directors to do and letting other people tell their stories through his work and what he shoots, I think is one of the biggest things and to have fun and have a positive experience in the editing room. Like these movies are so hard to make and there's so much pressure and stress. And if you let it, if you let it be that way, one of our earlier movies, I think it was Creed. I was freaking out about a deadline and I was blinded by it. I was leading with my anxiety. I couldn't get past it. And, and and he came into the room and, and, I, and, I, and I was like, we got to get this done. We got to get this done. And he's like, no, man, it's cool. It's cool. Don't worry about it. We'll figure it out. Because that's who Ryan is. He's a very common level-headed guy. And I couldn't let that go. And I kept pushing about the deadlines and pushing the anxiety. And he finally said, hey, bro, like, I understand your job's hard, but mine's even harder. And I need this editing room to be a safe place. Mm -hmm. And I snapped out of it. I was like, yeah, what am I doing? This guy has given me a career and he's fought for me. And the least I can do is be that support, be that comforting place where he can get away from all that stuff. And then he has a quote, uh, I think it was Lincoln. And he said, if you give me six hours to chop down a tree, I'm going to take four of those hours to sharpen the ax. Embracing what we're doing in our lives at the time and communicating and talking and just, we're both fathers of young kids. And so just talking about parenthood and fatherhood and things like that and the state of the world, all those things and those conversations that are happening are helping each other evolve. And I think that having that symbiotic relationship between our progression and our lives and the lessons we're learning. If we can implement that into the movie, even in the minor moments, we're pushing this, not just the story, the narrative, but pushing sort of what we're saying about the state of the world and the reflection of it, even through characters that are jumping out of planes. What you're telling me also reminds me of the story I heard. I don't know how true it is, but Nicolas Cage was working on The Cotton Club and he was having trouble remembering some of his lines and he was getting really frustrated. So Francis Coppola comes over to him and he says, hey, Nick, when we make wine, we dance. And when we make movies, it's like a celebration. So relax and dance. Enjoy the process. And I feel like we need that safe place. And I think it's great that Ryan creates that for you guys. Yeah, 100%. And I'm butchering a quote I heard somewhere, but they say we, we don't suffer from the events that happen. We suffer from the resistance of it. And there's a lot that can be resisted when it comes to a movie. There's our egos. There's our self-worth that we put into the work we do. 
but letting the process happen and letting whatever's best for the movie happen. And I think going movie first is always the answer for us. Absolutely. So Kelly, how did you become part of the film? I was finishing up Star Wars Obi-Wan Kenobi and a little bummed out because I wasn't really sure what the next thing was going to be. And I got a little stressed out about a month before I finished. And then I just said, you know what, Kel, the right thing will happen. And maybe you need to take the summer off. And then all of a sudden, the, just like these things kind of happen, <laughs> I got a call from my agent that said, hey, Ryan Coogler is interested in speaking to you. Do you want to take this call? And I'm like, are you kidding? Yes, absolutely. And so I had a Zoom interview with him. And then I had a Zoom interview with Mike and also Jen Lane. And then a couple of days later, but the call from my agent said, hey, you want to go work on Black Panther? And I was like, incredibly excited. So I came on in the around the second week of May. I guess we were just starting the director's cut. And for me, I didn't realize what a monumentous task this was going to be until like probably after we locked the picture and I started to sort of personally download what I just accomplished. I've never been a part of something this huge and this big, meaning as big a budget, as big a project, probably as much footage and also as many people. I came in and there were like probably close to 30 people in the office. Not only was I having to like understand the picture and understand the footage, but also understand the workload, the way things were working in the office, who was who. It was really big. (laughs) It was really kind of overwhelming, but the way I understand it is that Jen Lame, who had worked with Mike prior to me getting there, Jen was going to leave to go work on Christopher Nolan's movie. My whole thing was like, well, I want to go in and be as helpful as possible. I would say to friends of mine, I said, look, the one thing that I'm very confident in is that I can cut. But the bad part is that I don't know anything about the footage. I didn't even have time to read the script before I got there. And then on top of that, the workflow of the office, we had four assistant editors. We had three visual effect editors. I mean, this was the most massive crew I'd ever been a part of and just learning people's names. But I wanted to come in and help Mike as much as possible. For me, he was the lead editor. He had been working with Ryan for all these years. And I looked to him, okay, tell me what you need from me and I will do my best to be as effective on that piece as possible. And I always felt like I was hanging on to the back of a speeding bus. I was like, I'm just trying to keep up. And I was always very, very, very aware of just trying to be as positive as possible, have as good an attitude as possible, and just trying to be as helpful as possible. Mm. And what would you say is Ryan's process in the edit room? That's a good question. I would say the first thing, and I absolutely love this, I got to say it's usually a task to get directors to do this as early as Ryan and I do. But Ryan is very much a proponent of less is more. During the script phase, he'll write extra lines in the script or he'll write a full scenes where characters are saying a line and then elaborating in a subtextual way and then elaborating again. And you got, what do we take out, right? And I remember giving him a note early on I think on the first panther, I said, hey, I don't think you need this line. I feel like we're going to cut this out in the editing room. And he said, yeah, but it's going to help the actors get to that subtext. Sure. So the first thing we do is what can we cut out? Because every scene needs to have its own unique shape. And it's got to feel different than the other scenes. Like If you cut every scene in a movie 
starting from a wide, going medium, then close, and then back out to a wide, or staying in close to, to relieve the tension. Even if the scenes are about completely different things and the dialogue is different with different people, the audience will start to feel a redundancy and not feel like the story is moving forward on a subconscious or unconscious level. And you don't really find that final shape until you let go of things, until you cut those lines out. He'll come in right after shooting it, like a day after, and say, you know what? We don't need this line. I don't think we need this. I don't think we need this. Now, some of these lines come back later as the story evolves and the movie evolves. We're really finding it. We can always hit the undo button, but maybe taking these four lines out actually makes three scenes down the road even better. But I will say, if both editors agree on something, but he doesn't agree, he'll leave it in the movie, even in the final cut. If both editors say it's better for the movie, he will let go of it. Wow. On this project, I started it out with just me and Jen came out a few months later and it actually worked out well because when Jen came on, we had an injection of fresh eyes. And I know that when there's co-editors on a lot of movies, you split things up and it makes it easier in some ways, but we make it harder for ourselves. And Ryan wants both editors to touch as much as possible. If you have an idea for a scene that's been one way forever and you have a better idea, we want to see it. We, we keep our egos outside the door. You're not precious. Exactly. And we trust ourselves. You know, We trust our taste now even more than ever. So if someone does something and we're not 100% there, but it's a step forward or a step to the side. And I think that was one of the things when Kelly came on, because Kelly was extremely respectful and extremely helpful with the fresh eyes. But there were times where, I hope you don't mind me saying this, Kelly, where I was like, you're Kelly effing Dixon. Go mess things up. Get weird (laughs) with stuff. Try stuff. Like We want to see it. Ryan cares more about the people who make the movie than the movie itself. And I think that actually shows in the movie. You know, we'll pull all the assistants in. We'll have a new cut of a scene, even if it's just taking out a few lines or changing this in the montage. And we, we pack the room in. Or we show it during a VFX review when there's the whole team. And we say, hey, what do you think? Or the very end, we have two options. Hey, she says this one line or doesn't say this one line. Ultimately, is our decision, Ryan's decision. But we open it up to the room. And so leaving that organic nature open helped us, especially on this movie, because there's never been a character arc like this before, especially not in a superhero movie. And we're trailing new ground and blazing new trails. And I mean, I don't want to put that much praise on us, but we knew this movie was going to be about grief, but grief can take any form, really. And so which direction do people go in? What choices are they making? And movie first and best idea wins allows it to be the most unique, but grounded in reality type of final product. That's fantastic. I'm a, I, I just want to step in here and say, I got to applaud and appreciate what Mike just said, because yeah, everybody for me on this movie was incredibly accepting and respectful and encouraging, but coming in as a brand new editor on something that's been going for like 12 months, I was very conscious of coming in and stepping on anyone's toes as far as, hey, we cut this scene and we really like that part. Why did you change that? Stuff like that. Well, absolutely. And I think that certain directors have a different way of working. A lot of them don't want to get all this feedback from various entities. So it's just hard to know. And it sounds like Michael and Ryan are just super collaborative. You have to read the culture. and Exactly. You you got to come in, you got to read the room. And again, it's like, there's so many things that you've got to juggle. And I was just very fortunate and thankful that I was entering such a great working environment. Ryan and I, we build teams that have certain qualities and they're qualities you can't teach. We always look inward. If something didn't go right, if something didn't happen, we always look to ourselves, how do we do this better the next time? And we learned a lot on the first one. On the first one, I had never done one before. 
my co-editor, Claudia Castello, hadn't either. So we had a whole learning curve of these movies and to find the process. But Ryan and I had several discussions during pre-production of how, what are we going to do to make this work? And one of the things that almost every single Marvel editor will say, and it's a bit of a gripe, is when am I actually going to edit this movie? Because there's this meeting and that meeting and this thing and that thing. <laughs> VFX is a heavy part. And it's a great part. And it's a storytelling part. And it's a tool that, that we have to learn as editors that we get to be part of making the clay, not just taking the clay and making the sculpture out of it. But the specific issue that a lot of us have as editors is when am I going to get time with the director just one-on-one? -on -one? They're, they're being pulled in 20 different directions. They have this testing thing coming up. They have this press to do. They have this reshoot coming up. When do we mm -hmm. get time? And what I did is, and I did this before I even started shooting, I said, what I want during the director's cut and to move on is solid meeting times. Let's have a session for an hour, hour and a half with one editor and Ryan, just one-on-one -on -one to work on certain things. And then the second editor, one-on-one, -on -one, and then both editors with Ryan but they were scheduled at times of the day and everybody had to plan around that. This is our time. We're not going to mess with this until you guys say, hey, we really need them for this. And we're open 100%. We understand what the movie needs. And the other thing we did, which was insanely helpful, I thought was every week on Monday morning at 10 o'clock, we had a State of the Union meeting. We all got on Zoom. Everybody, it was Ryan, our producers, Nate Moore, Keanu Davidson, and all the way down the list, music, sound, the effect, everybody was on this call. And Ryan would say something first. And he obviously has amazing, encouraging words. Usually it was, you know, treat each other well, stay mindful, drink enough water. And then it would go to Adam, our post coordinator, and he would run down, okay, this is what we're looking at this week. And it would go to Kelly and myself. And we even had the sound designer on months and months before. And our composer Ludwig starts writing from the, the script phase. I mean, half the time, Ryan's daughter would run on screen and say, let me see the blue people. Let me see the blue people. And so that gave it a level of humanity and more of a feeling of a filmmaking family, which is what Ryan has always strived for and what we've always strived for. And I think the final product shows. And were you editing remotely? We, we all had our own remote systems, which tapped into our office systems. And actually, Ryan was remote 95% of the time up until maybe a couple months left on the movie and the finishing. And mm -hmm. we really embraced the work from home. I can't tell you how many times Ryan used the phrase family first. You know, if anything came up, if I need to go pick up my kid or if Kelly's dog needed something, it was always an open understanding that family, life, that stuff comes first. But yeah, we did a combo of working remote. And I'll get ideas middle of the night. And I'm, I was very grateful that Marvel let us do that because I could get those ideas down. There's one part in the movie when Shuri, it's towards the end, and she's pinned against the rock in her fight with Namor. And she flashes back to the scene with Killmonger. And that wasn't scripted that way. And I remember it was probably like 11, 12 at night. And I had the idea of like, what if she has a vision and that rage is what she uses to get off the rock and then yeah. burn Namor. I just remember thinking, I need to do this right now because if i died in the next 30 seconds no one would know this idea <laughs> and as long as i do it and i hit save that's but that's obviously our imaginations can take over but so yes very grateful for that and everybody was able to tap in even if they were out sick or we had a covid scare or something you know a lot of times i would start my day in the morning and i'd work from here and then i'd go in around lunchtime and then work the rest of the day at marvel and then finish there and maybe come home and do a little bit of work from home. So it was incredibly helpful and versatile. Totally. What would you say was your biggest challenge with this particular film? Obviously, with most movies, there's the long editor's cut. There is a four-hour version of this movie that works. And 
the stuff that we cut out had things that would have enriched the story. And you obviously can't, not obviously, but unless you're going to put an intermission in or break it up into two movies, a lot of it was getting this time down and, and maintaining the story. We had a lot of stuff to do in this movie. First and foremost was honoring Chad. Yeah. How are we telling the story? What do we cut out? How do we make these characters more involved? How do we play what we know? And what is Shuri's story? What is the main protagonist's story? How do we see the world through her eyes and go on the journey where we play with the hopes and the fears that we have as an audience to which direction she'll take? But also, what does she learn at the end? And one of the biggest challenges, I think, was not the end after everything wrapped up, but how Shuri gets to the place where we look at her and we're like, that's our Black Panther. Because mm-hmm. most superhero movies or action or whatever, the character already has those qualities. And then we're just waiting for them to be character. And then when they are, we celebrate. Shuri is arguably the most reluctant superhero. Yeah, it's forced on her by the death of her brother. Right, right. So she may have some of those qualities and we may see them at times in the first movie and in this one, but we don't know who she's going to be. She doesn't know who she's going to be, but we did need that punctuation. And so the scene where she does best Neymar in that fight and then has him by the throat, but then has flashes of their similar traumas they've gone through and putting those images together throughout, that wasn't scripted that way. That idea is actually based off of a movie from, I believe, 1985 or six, which is a very difficult movie to watch called Come and See. But it's a World War II thing, and there's a resistance soldier against the Nazis, and he has these flashes of if he could kill Hitler, he could solve this problem. But then he realizes that's not the answer. And it was a very similar sort of, which path am I going to take? And so we use that as an inspiration for How do we really see her make that change and go from the violence and the rage to the love? So then as Kelly or Jen was working on the underwater sequences where Shuri saw this world and really started that journey of who she's going to become when she is taken down to Talakon with Namor, we always had to kind of balance those two things. Mm -hmm. If this is our ending, this is the middle, we can kind of change anything. And, and, And that comes at a whole other challenge, which is the fact that for a long time, this movie was over three hours long. And everything you change in a movie, it's like a kaleidoscope. You change one thing and everything changes. Yeah. And having to have that alpha trance and have that critical eye and be open to things. There's a lot to balance in the movie, aside from introing two new characters, aside from revisiting characters we already knew and how we do that, how we disperse the information. So I guess my answer is all of it. <laughs> sure. <laughs> but those are some specific ones, yeah. Yeah. And in that sequence that you're talking about, you also reversed action was that something that was in that 1985 film as well oh yeah or... totally i totally paid homage to that 100 percent. cool it was so beautifully done the younger me would have been like well i can't take that somebody else did that but i think it was such an, a, a profound moment in cinematic editing and it fits so well into our story and, and i'm not afraid to say that that's what inspired that yeah i loved it Talk to me about the pressure to follow up the hugely successful first film without its star. Yeah, well, that's a good question. I think that there's the worldwide pressure and then there's the personal pressure. And in terms of the rest of the world, everybody was had already had an opinion about whether this movie should be made or not. So I could argue that the expectations for this movie were great and very specific to our yeah. movie. And Chadwick and that character was so intertwined. Mm-hmm. Not just in terms of who they were and what they stood for in life, but also how the world 
receive them. And, and, you know, Chadwick would always joke that he's like, please stop Wakanda saluting me in public, you know, because <laughs> it was such a, a connected thing. And as filmmakers and Brian included, we're like, should, do we even make this movie? But, you know, he was watching Chadwick's award speeches and commencement speeches. And he realized that Chadwick was telling us to keep going. So then Ryan got to work and over the next year was able to write a script. But there were discussions as small as, okay, how does he die? Well, you know, to us, you can't have him die in a battle off screen. That wouldn't be respectful to who that character sure. was and the character people loved. And then, okay, well, do we make it a sickness? But someone had a part in that. Well, no, you don't want, that's kind of the same thing. You don't want to do that either. So you basically know. leaned into what actually happened to him, which I thought was very powerful. Right. Well, thank you. And the thing is, it's a dangerous thing too, because leaning into what life is and what the human experience is, and we lose people that were closest. We lose people who are the foundation of our lives. And the fact that Ryan and myself being a collaborator of his, are always looking to what's the most real way to handle something, because that's what's always going to be believable to an audience. But on a micro level, on a personal level, as an editor, we have relationships with the actors that are like no relationship in the entire world, which is we will sit there and look at this person and know their strengths and weaknesses and flaws and love them and hate them at times. But then if you've never met them before, you go to the premiere and you say, hey, how you doing? And they look at you like, I know, you act you? like you know the person and they exactly. have no idea who because you are. Right, because you do. And I remember when Chadwick passed, maybe one or two people reached out to me and said, hey, I'm sorry for your loss. But I didn't know how to process that. I didn't know how to feel because I'd done panels with him and I'd worked with him on set. And, and so I was familiar, but I felt like I knew someone so intimately, but without having that relationship that I didn't know how to process that. I didn't know how to grieve it. Mm. And I said this to Ryan during the script phase. I said, just keep in mind that you and, and the people closest to him were able to grieve and mourn. And the rest of the world lost a hero. Yeah. The state of the world now, we've people have lost lots of people. We're mourning the life that we used to have before COVID. And I, I had to stop myself several times cutting things because I, I just couldn't. I had too many tears in my eyes. I couldn't see the screen. But knowing that the human experience is a shared one, Knowing that I was feeling that way, it would play that way to, to people, or, or, or at least that was the hope. And I think, you know, whether people liked it or didn't like it, I think universally people will say that it was a good tribute. And the other thing is we knew we were walking a line of reality, which is dangerous. You know, in a movie in itself, it's very dangerous to remind people of a real person. Yeah. Right? Because you could get taken out of the movie. Be like, oh, that was a nice tribute. But okay, now here the movie's starting over again. And when we had the logo at the beginning of the movie with Chadwick, all the shots of him, we even changed the shot where it was behind the scenes thing and then changed it to a shot where it was more cinematic. And then most Marvel movies have a cold open and then cuts to black, cuts the Marvel logo. We, you know what? We're ending this first sequence on Shuri and then we're going to the Marvel logo. Why don't we crossfade it? Where the last frame you see her on that first dissolve is the first frame you see him, which is her story. Mm. And she is taking over the mantle. She's transforming into the Black Panther. Yes, and that's the start of it. We had originally had over that logo having world leaders say great things about T'Challa and how the world misses him. And we did that and we we're like, this is kind of busy. And it's kind of stepping on this moment. You even pulled out the sound, which made it even more powerful. There's yeah, a little bit of, it sounds like a little wind or something like that, but it was very strong. When we were thinking about, okay, what can we do here? I thought about the scene where Ramonda says, after your brother passed and how I got over it, I sat and I listened and I could feel his hand on my shoulder and I could feel him in the breeze. Yeah. And I thought, let's put breeze there. But it actually is storytelling within 
a company logo, to be honest. And then after we did that, once we cut the last scene with Shuri, when she actually has those clear visions of him and her and is, is actually getting over it and letting go and having that cathartic experience on the beach, we put the wind there again. But you may not get, because it's so subtle that it feels like a moment of silence. Yeah, and it could be a much more powerful wind. You see mm-hmm. her hair flapping around a lot, but yep. it's just a very subtle piece. It's almost silent. Mm-hmm. And then you don't hear her until you just hear almost a slight whimper, a sigh as uh, Rihanna's music comes in. I thought mm-hmm. it was very powerful. Thank you. It always made Kelly cry, and that's how we knew. And if we made changes and Kelly wasn't crying at that moment. Every time. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, all like probably 25 times over three months that I saw the movie, I cried every single time. The first time that I saw the movie was probably like, I think the 12th of May or something. And I just remember tearing up. It was just so incredible. When I first saw the movie in May, there was discussion even then about, you know, well, what was the illness? Because we just didn't know within the story. But the interesting thing about that dilemma was in the real world, we knew that Chadwick had died. So we were basically having to straddle this boundary between the real world and the narrative world of the movie. And that's one of the reasons I think it was incredibly effective, that funeral part of the movie Mike did that, and it was just incredibly effective, I just will say. But it was a discussion, do we explain T'Challa's death, or do we not explain T'Challa's death? Talking about Chad's illness, that first shot was really powerful, because you just had it in a single shot for a long time, where you're following Sherry, and you then don't cut until we see Romanda. And that gives that reveal a lot more impact. That was a one It was shot and planned as a one And Ryan likes to do one but there has to be a point to it. Editorially, it's really which of these 12 takes has what you described, has that urgency, has that emotion. You know, obviously, as an editor, it's very important to know when to cut, but it's also very important to know when not to cut. When we really broke it down to the beats, you know, it's obviously always goes performance first, emotion first, performance and we did have the opportunity to hide some cuts in some whip pans, but we found that even slight changes in a take or a performance wasn't giving us that same feel. Mm. And, and also sound design. What do these things sound like? Is this going to be too much? Is this going to take over? And really threading the needle. I think we went through 100 different iterations of what the 3D printer sounded like that was printing the herb she was waiting for. Because a lot of times it felt just grating and cold and non-emotional. And this is our sound team, who's incredible, Skywalker Sound and Steve Bodeker and Benny Burt. But working with us in tandem of finding a sound that almost gives you hope and working with Ludwig, the composer, what do you play? Do you play the dread? And what Ludwig was able to do is almost have the original Panther theme start to build up as that thing was being printed. Okay, this might work, this might work. And then boom, we turn around and we see Ramada. But then also Shuri's, she gave a great performance where she's looking at the herb and saying with no words, like, but no, this could work, this could work. And then starting to cry. And we hard cut out in an inopportune time, not in a flow, normal cut, because he was taken from her life abruptly. Yep. And that moment, oh, that failed, boom, we're at the funeral. And that funeral dance was really interesting because there's an explosion of energy. And then Mm -hmm. you switch to that very 
surreal moment where everything goes into slow-mo and the sound becomes very dull and muted. Yeah, so so you know, it was shot in slow motion and converted to 24 frames. Not every take was. Only I think one take per setups cuz cuz we weren't totally sure. So Ryan flirted with this idea of hey, do we show some slow motion and then when he mentioned that to Ludwig, that collaboration became what if we slow it down and what if we slow the music down? It's muted and there's some treatment to it, but it's actually slowed down to match the frame rate so that the dancing and the rhythm, you don't lose that even though it's completely shifting and pivoting to something else. We go into the slow motion through Ramonda's POV when she looks up and that was actually faked because that mural of Chadwick wasn't where she was looking. That is actually facing another direction. And, you know, Ryan's a stickler for where things are in geography, but thank God he lets keep it that way because the mother seeing the son's mural and then seeing the drummer slow down and then going back to her. Slow motion are all done for an emotional reason, to make it feel like that's their personal experience as much as possible. It's organic. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so we go to Shuri, who's having a really hard time with this. And as much as an audience member and as filmmakers, we can appreciate, hey, Wakandan culture, death is not the end. It's a stepping off point. And th- these people don't leave us. And let's celebrate the time we had them. And then juxtaposed with Shuri resisting that. Yeah. Right. And resisting that stuff and seeing like these people dancing, my brother and us as an audience, because she's not saying any words and the music gets warped and we can relate to her. We put our own hopes and fears and our own experiences into her in that moment. Absolutely. When we have these big life events and or we lose somebody and things like that, our brains can go to that place where sound is muted and you don't remember things and things jump around. And so we were really embracing a non chronological emotional journey, even in those moments. But Personally, I love if cutting aggressively and cutting moments short because his life got cut short and cutting long and slow because now Sherry has to live in this pain and she's not dealing with it well. Those are the little extra things that we get to do as editors that, that will help bolster the audience's experience and put themselves and their own experiences into the shoes of the person we want them to, which is Sherry. Yeah. One thing I, we're really proud of is, you know, the first 15, 20 minutes of this movie feel like five minutes. And I think the fact that we were able to achieve that and bringing all the disciplines, the acting, music, sound, directing, everything all together, I think is one of the reasons why people can sit through this two-hour, 45-minute movie and not have their attention span wander. Absolutely. We'll be right back. Critics everywhere are praising Black Panther Wakanda forever. It's a triumphant celebration. Coogler delivers an emotionally resonant tribute with a rare visual richness. It is a profound take on life and legacy. Now is our turn. Black Panther, Wakanda Forever. Rated PG-13. May be inappropriate for children under 13. For your consideration in all categories, including Best Picture. Talk to me about shooting and editing the underwater sequences. Was that CG water or did the actors go into a tank? I'll let Mike do that because he was there, but I can tell you just from cutting the footage, it's both. It's really interesting. And what I found also really interesting was if they weren't underwater, how visual effects made their hair move. Yes, it was both. Fun fact, I didn't know there was a thing you can drink that allows you to hold your breath underwater for seven, eight minutes or 10 minutes or something. I didn't know that. Yeah, it it, it actually blew my mind. But that does not take away anything from underwater acting of the actors. So... 
a lot of it was underwater. And from an editing standpoint, it's, it's really difficult, especially when they're in big suits and big metal suits. They're moving so slow. And with movies, you got to keep it moving. So you got to speed around some stuff. There was a balance of when they were actors not in the suits and they're obviously blinking a lot because they're underwater and they're trying to emote and act and look at things and smile and do whatever. And there's a lot of cutting around that. But we did a lot of tests. And the underwater stuff was mostly done by Weta, the VFX company. But I remember some things we shot both ways. You know, they had wet for wet, like Kelly was saying with the hair or his headdress in the water. And they put the two tests side by side and the motion of the feathers, you couldn't even pick out the shot. Wow. And so like, so having that tool and having them behind us and supporting us, we were able to mix and match shots. We were able to reshoot things. Some things we shot in a tank and it just didn't play. We didn't get the emotion. We didn't get the movement. We didn't get whatever. It was a difficulty in picking the takes that was just something just different than I ever experienced. And a lot of it had to do with how long they could be underwater, how well they could emote underwater, how fast they were moving underwater. I mean, you're dealing with people who I'm sure drowning is totally on their minds, but then they have to act and you have to pick good takes of them and natural looking stuff to where it's quite daunting. I really love the intercutting during the UN meeting when there's the attack on the Wakanda outreach facility. The intercutting it really became when do we intercut, what do we intercut, and what, what tells the best story. And we actually had done a lot more intercutting in earlier versions. And it was Kevin Feige who, um, you know, Kevin Feige, Lou D'Esposito, Vittorio Alonso, the three, the trio as we call them, the brain trust of Marvel. They are some of my favorite people to work with. They are so collaborative, no ego when they're in there. We had that sequence and it was working really, really well. Angela Bassett is the greatest actor of all time. But Kevin said, there's something about it. I don't know what it is. Can we try not cutting to the action side of things until Ramonda starts to talk? Bringing it to Ramonda's perspective and only bringing out that intercutting and that juxtaposition when she starts to bring it up makes it more about her makes it more about what happened more specific to where she is in her brain but it also compresses it so that we're keeping the same real estate but telling it in the least amount of time allowed us to build in a much more rapid and climactic way so that the reaction from the audience when okoye makes all those guys kneel and says you're welcome to the french woman who hired these mercenaries you're saying hell yeah yeah and then you have all the suspense at the oil rig and the underwater sequence as they lose Jackson's vitals. One of the inspirations for that sequence was the abyss, uh, having mm. the opportunity to watch great movies and see what the masters did and how do we learn from them and how do we try to do a couple of things differently and how do we subvert what people are going to think. And in terms of creating shots with the Viz departments and the VFX departments, it wasn't until maybe a couple months left where I said, you know what, I really want a really wide shot of these little tiny divers and seeing this big drill down there. I was extremely grateful to have edited A Quiet Place 2 because I learned a lot in that movie, especially when it comes to the suspense and horror drama. And Krasinski is absolutely incredible with that stuff. But I took my lessons from that and put it into the pacing, the flow, the build, you know, the climax. And all three editors had moments where we said, we really love a shot like this to help tell the story and really set the tone or, or do whatever. And I know there's one shot that I'm pretty proud of where the divers are down in the water. And I said, we need something off-putting. 
more than just the lights turning off. Something else that pulls a few of the like the suspense threads where you know something bad is going to happen to these people. And so the lights go off and the two divers are turning around. And I found a wider shot of them. And I just took a black chunk of a frame and I made it fly through the screen like something was crossing frame that we didn't see. And then I went to the Viz team and the VFX team and said, hey, is this possible? Can you guys throw something in here crossing the frame? We're going to put a stinger in there and just, you know, put the audience back on their heels a little bit of what was that without it, without explaining too much. And so you show the bomb under the table that tells the audience if something bad is going to happen. That time when you know something is going to happen that's wrong and the time that it does happen is when you can really mold that pacing and stretch that mm -hmm. out and let the audience feel uncomfortable and maybe you don't cut when they say hey we lost jackson's vitals and she turns i stretched that moment as as long as i possibly could those little frames build and build and then allow you to do that release of that big action sequence make it uncomfortable yeah, yeah exactly exactly yeah and tell me about introducing a new main character and the difficulty of having riri as another character that we haven't experienced in the other film, but she has to be as likable and fit in to everyone that we've grown to love from the other film. What we did throughout the process was find ways to integrate Riri more. In the car chase sequence, for example, when they see the drone, Riri's like, okay, I got this. And Riri was always going to go and fly up and take out that drone, but it was a little too easy. So then working with the studio and Ryan and Kelly, we talked about it, and the, I forget who came up with the idea, but that doesn't matter because the best idea wins, of, hey, can Riri, like, calculate some math and figure out how to use this drone to their advantage? And those were reshoot things, but Kelly took that idea and made it work. And Kelly actually, Kelly, correct me if I'm wrong, but you recorded your own voice yeah. as temp ADR. I don't know if you want to, if you want to talk about that because that yeah. was awesome. The interesting thing about that was Ryan actually had an idea – we were all talking about how Grio in the Royal Talon Fighter was going to catch Namor at the very end. And he said, hey, that's the same way that she shoots that drone down. And it's with basically triangulation of vectors and math. And I was like, maybe we can have her calculate on the fly, like the physics of if I go at this speed, and the drone is going at this speed, at this angle. If I shoot it here, will it land here? And we wanted to make sure the audience understood that Riri had planned for that drone to take out the police barricade at the end of that bridge. From what I understand, Riri is the smartest person in the MCU, or one of them, right? And we know that Shuri's, you know, super smart. So it was really important because these are two women of color, young women of color in the MCU, and they're both like super brains. So at one point I wrote some math sounding words, because I'm certainly not a mathematician, that she could say as she's accelerating in the Iron Man suit and going after the drone, it ended up being way too complex. So we found ways to make it so the audience understood that, yes, as she's accelerating up, she's calculating in her mind, if I shoot the drone going this fast and it's going this fast, it will hit at that point. But I just thought it was super, super interesting. Ryan made that correlation. I think that as moviegoers and as storytellers, we're all big fans of having one thing happened earlier in the movie and then paying it off later. And so that one to me was a really big 
payoff. And there were scenes that are not a part of the movie anymore. And I think a lot of the stuff that I was doing was looking through the scripts and looking through these scenes and, hey, we need that line or we need that moment. How can we use this moment with the two of them in another space where we can include this part of their relationship. Um, mm. Like one of them was with the car at the end. We had this scene where Shuri has basically reassembled the Barracuda. And I always liked that because I was like, wow, that car really means a lot. And I like cars a lot. So when that car got ruined, I was kind of like, wow, that's like a 60s Barracuda. <laughs> But there was really no basis for talking about Riri's experience with that car. And so I was like, hey, look at this part where she says, that was my dad's car and my dad was a mechanic. And I'm like, is there any way that we can use this? We couldn't use the footage, but we could use the sound. And then later in the summer, Ryan and Mike came up with a way to use that stuff because I was always like, this is super important. And if we just give the car back to her without understanding how deep of a meaning that car has for her, it doesn't really help us. Absolutely. And talking about the sequence where they're going to destroy the Barracuda, that whole action sequence and all the action sequences, I think one of the things I love so much about them is there's a real clarity to what's happening. It's not chaotic. You have these three characters, they're going off in different directions, and yet you still follow what's going on. It's not like things are just happening haphazardly. Can you talk to me about cutting action sequences and how you keep everything geographically clear and keep the energy going? Well, I'll start. Mike cut way more action sequences in this than me. And I will say that that was a scene that I took over when I got there. I believe both Jen and Mike had parts of that scene and they left me a really nice foundation. So I have to give it up to them. When I first got there, I, I got a very good sense of the geography and the things that were going to happen. The thing that I missed was just the small intricacies. And I totally understand because on something of this magnitude, it's very hard to find cut in the beginning. You just can't. I wanted to see a lot of things from Okoye's point of view. I wanted to center it in Okoye's situation. And I just started to look at the basic framework of the whole thing. Ryan is very, very much a stickler of not crossing the line or correct me, like I don't want to say the wrong thing, but this is my conjecture on this, but I got the impression that it really throws his personal equilibrium off to cross the line. It doesn't really throw mine off and cutting stuff like that. It doesn't really bug me, but I noticed in a lot of the feedback that I would get from him, he's like, can you flop that? What other coverage is there? I was totally blown away with how much footage that they had actually shot and I was like wow you know because Mike would say hey can you go back and look in this one part and I would look back in assembly and I'd be like oh my god this happened and this happened it was pretty amazing yeah and I love how you talk about point of view because I do think that point of view does help the audience understand what's happening and see it from that particular character's perspective it was a tough because usually when you have action sequences, the best thing you can do is set up the goal and then remind audiences what the goal is of this car. Is it to get this person? Is it to do this? Is it to get to this point? Now, 
it was a challenge because their only goal was just to get out of the city. There was no ticking clock of we have to get out by this time. It was just get out. And so it became what is their relationship, not just the three of them, but their relationship with Grio, who we knew we were going to have to use way more throughout the movie as a get out of jail free card of explaining things to the audience because these movies are complex. And you try to make superhero movies complex, but that's actually a mistake in a lot of ways because they're already mm-hmm. complex. So it's really about simplifying. And so when I look at any action sequence, there's 100% perspective. And then there's the balance of emotional energy, which is either setting up or the peaks and valleys at different points, and the physical energy. For example, what I was saying before about, about using slow motion coming from a character's perspective, when we did that with Shuri, we cut to the door getting ready to run off, and we use slow-mo when they dive off in one of the coolest shots. Now, we knew we were going to use the slow motion there because it's cool, but I'll be damned if I'm only putting a shot in because it's the cool thing to put in. It's got to feel epic. It's got to come from a character. It's got to feel necessary. When you can combine emotion, action, emotion, action, and not get lost, it's great. And yes, to, to Kelly's point about jumping the line and 180-degree rule, yes, Ryan and I are very sticklers for that. And I'm sure Kelly got sick of us saying, hey, no, <laughs> wrong side of the line. When it was like a quick shot for like half a second, it was like, hey, that's the wrong side of the line. Because those little things of geography help you be a little more out there, you know? And some directors don't care about the line, and that's fine. It's a whole different style. But I think that is one of the reasons why you don't, necessarily get lost with all the action but it definitely took all hands on deck to get that right and anybody who has the best idea it's what won kelly had a lot of those i will say that there was one thing it's not an action sequence but ryan said hey i'm thinking about just getting rid of namor's mother's bracelet and i was like oh wait i was like pretty vocal about i don't think this is a good idea And Ryan, I can't remember the reason why you wanted to do it, but I kind of spoke up and said, hey, not only do I think we can't get rid of the bracelet, I felt like we need to play up more how the bracelet helps Shuri figure out the DNA. To me, this is a narrative miss if we get rid of this. And so I remember going to Mike and saying, hey, man, I don't think this is a good idea. And I think, Mike, you said, oh, no, we should really keep this as well. So I just wanted to mention the bracelet because I don't think I've seen that in any of the press or anything that I've read. And I just was like, hey, that bracelet almost didn't make it. (laughs) Absolutely. Tell me about the attack on Wakanda, the suddenness of the water explosions and creating the disorientation while also keeping everything very clear. The first thing I want to say about it is that at the very, very end, probably within the last two weeks before we locked the picture, Mike said, hey, Kelly, just take it apart and mess it all up. And I was like, are you, what? And I was just like, oh man, are you serious? But it was probably one of the biggest things I'm going to take away from this experience. And so I need to give it up to him because I don't think I ever would have done that on my own, but it was incredibly beneficial. We had a scene, you know, a really good sequence, but it was not a great sequence. And once I did that and would bounce the ideas off of him, and one of the things that he suggested is, hey, what if we take this explosion and juxtapose it to this explosion? And it did take the structure that we had that was working and really throw it into chaos in a good way, but also in bad ways, because then we had to figure out, okay, we've got this hole here now. What do we put here to keep this momentum going? Ryan had a very specific plan of how this attack would be. And that that's great for understanding and feeling. 
But you get to a point where you realize that this action sequence, like Kelly said, is good. It's not great. And it falls into, you know, cool. I've seen this type of action sequence in movies and there's nothing special proprietary about it. How you get there, in my experience, is, and I actually did this towards the end because the end battle, which was sort of my baby from start to finish, was that same thing where things were happening, but you fall into this land of punchy, punchy, kicky, and people get bored with it. And they want something else to happen. They want something to move forward. They want the next step. And Ryan and I had watched this awesome YouTube video that break down scenes and why they work. And one of them was the Battle of Helm's Deep from Lord of the Rings, The Two Towers. And they talk about the peaks and valleys of these sequences and how you need small victories from somebody. You need defeats. And that plus action matches, but emotion matches. For example, in the, in the third act battle, Good things happen, bad things happen. Good things happen, bad things happen. But it was way too long. So what I did was I basically said, okay, at this point, Wakandans have the upper hand. And at this point, Talcaneal starts to get it back. And then I needed that low point for us to like really be like, this is up to Sherry now. This is up to Sherry now. And so I took things from all different parts where Wakandans are getting beat or they're getting back down. Or Nikia is getting back down and this person is getting hurt. And I put all those things together so that that moment became this big dip in emotion. Interesting. And, and so when I did that and we played it back for the studio, it was one of my happiest moments because it had been working okay up to that point, but it was too long and not as pointy as it could be. Once I did that, I think we played it back and Kevin Feige goes, that's why people go to the movies. And I was like, oh, that's the greatest compliment I, I could have ever gotten. That's awesome. Yeah, yeah I, I marked it. I have a tattoo. The I remember tattoo that day. <laughs> But then as we were like, okay, what can we do to this flood? And Kelly had already improved it so much and intercutting and doing this and doing that, that I was like, what if we take the same approach? Let's just have all the explosions happen. And then we had had the first explosion right after she says, we're under attack. And then we tried it without even her saying that line and it just blows up. But then Kelly goes in there and it cuts her line off with uh, you know the explosion. And that brought the biggest thing. And because that had happened, and then I, we were on the track of let's clump these things together, these peaks and valleys, and let the audience really go through with the people we love. Let's put all the explosions at once. Who cares about geography? And Kelly did it, and it was like, oh, wow, that worked. We're under attack. Boom. Then you see Mbaku jump in, and then you see this. So now we're all going, and it's all the chaos. But the reason why we could be disoriented at that point was because we had done so many different versions where we stayed geographically right, where we stayed pers perspective correct, and then just mess it up. And to speak on the whole mess it up thing, we use more foul language and when we say it, <laughs> say F it up, but there might be some kids out there listening. But Ryan and I at times will take the movie or take a sequence and then put a, a black and white filter over it, or we'll, we'll, we'll mirror, we'll flop every shot, we'll put a flop filter over the top except for the titles, so that when you watch it back, it changes it just enough that you're like, oh, that cut doesn't work, or, that, or I can't follow that, or I can't follow that because... Obviously, you need to have the fresh eyes when you've been staring at something for a year. And That's a cool. And I got the idea because I read one time that writers will change the font just enough to read it differently and change their perspective. So if they write it in Times New Roman or Ariel, whatever, they'll change it to Comic Sans. And ju just that shift will do it. But along that same vein, if you take what you've been used to and do something that you know is wrong, your taste will tell you if it's better or worse. I think trusting your taste. On this movie, I was very much a proponent of if I'm scared of it, try it. And you just lay it down because your, your taste is going to tell you if it works or not, if it's good enough or not, if the story's being told or not. And if my taste can't do it, then Kelly's taste or Ryan's taste. But yeah, it's about shifting things enough and just trusting the process and trusting your yourself that if you put something on screen that works for you, it's hopefully going to work for the audience. That's excellent. Yeah. I thought 
the transformation to the Black Panther was really interesting in that when she drinks the serum, you have these very quick shots after she drinks and they're mostly of her mom. So you're expecting that's who she's going to see. And then you go to this very surreal scene with Killmonger. So on the, on the first movie, when T'Challa takes it, he sees images of his father and it's his most direct elder. When Killmonger does it, we see flashbacks from Killmonger and his father. So those images represent the person who the character wants to see, but also the main moments of the road that led them to this specific point in the story. So then it came to the discussion of what we do with Shuri. Now, if she was taking heart-shaped herb that grew in the ground and Killmonger didn't burn it all in the first one, then we'd probably do the same thing. But we had a little bit of room to play because this was an herb that she made. We didn't know if it was going to work or not. But then I put in heartbeats, like getting subconscious. Like I wanted to get a little more subjective to her. So as this stuff is coursing through her veins, we hear the boom. And we use that as a pacing and a flow thing to build up to now she's in this world. So we did that. I showed Ryan. He said, hey, what if we try cutting to black for just like flashes with on the heartbeat? And then a couple weeks after that, I thought, you know what? Why don't we take the concept of her seeing her mom? This is who she wants to see. And just putting flashes. And so I took flashes. Like there's a flash of the two hands on T'Challa's casket. And then we see the moments of Ramonda caring about her and worried about her. And then I took a shot where they were huddled together from the first movie when they were hiding from Killmonger together to show a little bit in their past. And then the last shot is Ramonda convulsing when they were trying to revive her, which then was intercut with Shuri convulsing on the table, which brought them together in a spiritual, emotional kind of way. All of this to serve the misdirect that this is Killmonger. And that is done in very subtle ways where Nikia is doing the ritual and she says, Ramonda, come see your daughter. That piece of information pops in. Then we go to the throne room, which in the first one, we, we set up that when people see their ancestors, it's, it's where they were buried or where they died, right? And then the reason why Killmonger's hair is like that on the day is because that circular image looks like the top of Ramonda's crown. And so the idea was to have Shuri get up and you see it in the background. Now, because it was a darker scene and because it's out of focus a little bit, Ryan had VFX make it a little more like a crown. And, and then Shuri says mother. And so showing the images of her to your point is to set up this misdirect, but also set up the two paths Shuri's going to go down, right? The hope and the fear, the good. Is she going to be a great leader like her mom? Oh no, is she going to be this guy? I'm going to say too that from the very first time that I saw the movie, I never expected Killmonger. I like never, ever in a million years expected Killmonger. It's one of my favorite scenes. I think it's incredibly well cut. I wish I could say I did it. I did not. Mike did it. It was great. We went through, I think, four friends and family screenings, and I was always excited to hear the audible gasp in the theater when people discovered it was Killmonger. I'm like, uh, yeah, you didn't expect this, did you? It was, I just love that. That's a great moment. You mentioned the black flashes that uh, Ryan was mentioning, and you have those black flashes when Suri looks like she might be dying with the spear through her. Tell me about that choice, because I thought that was really a great choice as well. Thank you for that. I, Kelly, was that the last note we did in the entire thing? Oh, I don't and, know and, about that. So we were locking the reels, and obviously we have a lot to do to try to fix up, finish at the end. But it came out of complete necessity. So 
one of the things that some people bumped on, we had a shot when Namor stabbed Shuri. We cut to an insert shot of the spear like going through her, through the rock, coming out the other end to be like, oh, she's done. She's stuck there. Like, she can't get out. He's going to get away. Like, the last day we were locking that reel, we're all exhausted. And some of our team were like, how could she survive? So the problem was because of the VFX and because of the time we had left in the movie, the shot where he is pushing it in and the shot where they're face to face and let's go and falls were two different shots. And we didn't want to jump cut it because it felt really strange. So it was literally the 25th hour and we're trying to figure like, what do we do? What do we do? And Ryan's, Hey, you want to do flashes? And I was like, yeah, yeah. Let me just try the flashes the same way we did before. And I took the heartbeat and I put it in there and I cut to two different flashes. It was one of those like happy accident. Thank God this worked because I have no fuel <laughs> left in the tank because we're locking this movie and I don't know how to solve this without using that shot. And, but yeah, so thank you for saying that. That makes me feel so much better because I was worried even through the mix, like it did not work and we just did it as a get out of jail free thing. Well, I but personally love that stuff. I love that awesome. experimental stuff. For me, it was effective. Great. Thank you. Also want to add, the one thing that was a big education for me on this, like I said, I used to joke and say, look, I come from the poor side of town. These are new muscles that I'm having to like learn. And we had to figure out ways to make things happen that weren't shot. But in a world like that, you can't. On the port side of town, we'd have to use other muscles where we have to be resourceful. And in this, we had to bring every single skill that we had. And it was very new for me. The other thing, too, that was new was just so many people, how it would affect so many people. We're basically at the end. Visual effects needed to be locked down so they could work. And we were trying to come up with new ways to do this within very strict parameters. It's not like, you know, you think where you can just throw money at it. That was not an option for us. So the whole thing was a huge learning experience, just taking your skills on being a resourceful editor, looking at stuff that, you know, was never meant for this, but how can we use it? So the thing about Ryan Coogler is that he's going to figure out the best movie but sometimes that's when we're supposed to be hands off the movie. And so we'd be in the mix and he's like, Kelly, was it every single mix session we had for the final mix? He's like, Hey, I got two picture notes. Can we try this? Can we try this? Can we try this? And VFX is, we actually would bring VFX down so we, there. So Jeff Bauman, our VFX supervisor and Nicole Rowley, our VFX producer and, and their whole teams, God bless them because they were super collaborative, <laughs> especially towards the end where like we were making changes after, and this is terrible to say, but after, after, like, while they were printing <laughs> Yeah, we, we were in the DI making changes at that point, too. It though. was really 25th then, hour. It, was, yeah. it gets nerve-wracking, but you got to trust Ryan. We got to trust us. We got to trust the process. Yeah, um, we, and... we'd be in a DI session, and Ryan would be like, play that part. Okay, can we do this, Mike? Can you go, go check out, see if that works? I'm going to go over to the mix and see if they can change it. I mean, it was like, I was yeah. like, wow. <laughs> wow. <laughs> That's insane. But it all worked out. Yeah. It did. I love the movie and I love talking to you guys. And thank you so much. Thank you. Great. Thank great you questions. For having great. Us. Yeah. Really, really great interviewer. Thank you for having us. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe. We really appreciate it.
show them who we are.